Mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, fam? It's your boy ZDog MD, aka Dr. Zubin Demania. I am live and direct out of Z Office. Check it out. Today, I want to talk a little bit about um, the podcast I did a few days back on the mind system that was based on this book, The Mind Illuminated. It's all backwards because of the way I've set my iPhone right now. Um, it actually generated a lot of great discussion, and I was really excited to see that people are interested in exploring sort of, uh, <clears throat> you know, it's an interesting word, spirituality. It's really a study of the mind. It's introspection and trying to figure out how the mind works. And there's probably not a better word than spirituality in a, in a secular context. So in a scientific empirical context, you can actually study the mind and use sort of ancient philosophy, but also modern neuroscience to better understand how we think, how we react, how we behave and use that as a vehicle to improve ourselves in a way that actually reduces suffering, not just for us, but for everyone around us. And I'll tell you, in healthcare in particular, oh, snap, we could use a lot more of that in our lives. So when I did that broadcast about the mind system, which I'll summarize briefly in the beginning of this talk, um, I thought no one was gonna care about it because it can get a little esoteric, you can sound a little Deepak Chopra-ish, which is never a good idea. Uh, it feels like, oh, is he dabbling into weird Eastern religion? No, no religion, nothing to believe, simply a better way and a model, one model to understand how the mind works in a way that, again, we can improve it and reduce suffering. Now, the way I got into all this was starting to meditate. And the reason I titled this show McMindfulness is that in many ways now, meditation, mindfulness, all of this stuff has become so popular in this sort of popular canon as a way to reduce stress and uh, improve performance and improve focus. And the medical people, a lot of medical systems and groups are trying to teach mindfulness to their staff and to their doctors and to their uh, frontline uh, clinicians and frontline uh, hospital staff as a way to alleviate burnout. Now, before I even get into this, I wanna say a couple things about that. You cannot, <laughs> asking the victims of a broken system to become more mindful, to do yoga, to do deep breathing, to exercise, to take occasional vacations, right? Is simply reframing the broken system in a way that they are compliant, able to function within it and carry out the tasks that are within it. What that does is an incredibly dangerous thing, which number one, it blames the victim, which is us, for being burned out. Well, if you were just more mindful, you know, your, your ish could get better and you could get through your day. No, we're not accepting that Z-Pack, that's BS. The second problem with that is it, it is a way of, of saying, well, with equanimity and acceptance, we're gonna accept the fact that our systems broke AF and we're just gonna continue to function within it without burning out. Hugely bad idea, and it encourages the kind of potential inertia and acceptance of dysfunction that has led us to this problem. Now, true mindfulness, being aware of, of what's going on moment to moment, being in the present moment, and understanding how your mind works so you're more proactive and less reactive, and you come from a place of um, thoughtfulness, mindfulness, if you will, when you make decisions and act, means that number one, yes, we can, we can function better in brokenness, but more importantly, we can see clearly the brokenness and work together through a better understanding of ourselves and others to actually transform the system as a whole. And that's ultimately the secret goal here, guys, is not to be compliant with this broken medical system, but to actually transform it. But to do that, we also have to 
undergo some personal understanding and transformation. So when I talk, let me, let me pull up your comments here because I wanna take your comments today and I wanna look at some comments that were left on the video I did on the mind system. And again, the book is called The Mind Illuminated. It's linked to in the previous video and I'll throw a link to it in this as well. It's less about the book, although I think it's a great guide and a great way to understand the mind, understand how you meditate, the processes and the stages that you go through. And what's fascinating about it on my own <clears throat> sort of trip through this is that it's like the guy who writes it is in your head because he's done this. So he can tell you, okay, in this stage of your meditative practice, you are gonna experience these inner sort of phenomenon of flashing lights. They may have a color, they may not have a color. They may seem like they're coming from above. Some people have those, some people have this. Some people are he hear this sort of tone. Some people have weird bodily sensations. And I'm like, oh crap, that's exactly what I'm having and I thought I was going insane. So the book is really good as a way to understand, oh, this must be a stereotypical way that the mind works. Now to quickly summarize what I talked about before, the mind system model is based on sort of ancient uh, Buddhist understanding of the mind, but it's really increasingly supported by modern neuroscientific understanding of how the mind works. It's as simple as this and very complicated actually, but I'm gonna make it simple for the purposes of this discussion. <clears throat> the mind isn't one thing. There's not a little thinker behind your eyes making decisions. It is actually a system of these unconscious subminds. So there may be a, an auditory submind, a visual submind, a sensory body submind. So the sort of sense subminds, and then there's the sort of thinking submind that he calls the discriminatory submind. That could be doing math, planning ahead, inhibiting uh, uh, desires and actions based on a moral code that you have. It could be a sexual submind that's always out trying to get laid. It could be, um, the emotional discriminatory submind that feels things, anger, disgust, love, those kind of things, happiness. So all these different subminds are there and they all function unconsciously. You're not aware of what they're doing most of the time and they function together at the same time in parallel. So the question is, if this is true and through meditation, through actual neuroscience, you can actually start to see, yeah, no, this actually, is correct, intuitively it feels correct on many levels. So as these things are all functioning, they are all vying for attention. They're all vying for, they're trying to keep you alive, they're trying to get you to reproduce, they're, they're aiming for the overall contentedness and happiness of your organism, you, your mind body, this whole continuum that you are. But to do that, they're all working at the same time, so how do they communicate with each other and how are you aware of what's going on? Well. The subminds are arranged in a boardroom is the analogy, like at a, at a corporate meeting room or a meeting room in your hospital where they're all kind of sitting around a table and in the center of that boardroom is a PowerPoint projector. <clears throat> and on that PowerPoint projector is projected one frame at a time, a moment of consciousness that we are actually aware of. And that frame is seen by all the subminds which means they can all exchange data through this boardroom. The boardroom is conscious awareness. It's what we're actually aware of, which is a tiny fraction of what the mind is actually doing at any given time. So at this moment, my discriminatory submind is unconsciously processing stuff that happened earlier in the day. It's going through checklists of stuff that I'm gonna need to do. All this other stuff's happening in the background. The auditory submind hears my kid fooling around with her violin, hears some birds outside, and it's like, well, do I need to put this on the PowerPoint for the boardroom to see? Uh, all these kind of things are going on at once. So how do we function? Well. Each of these things ends up throwing stuff into the boardroom and seeing what sticks. And whatever sticks is what we're paying attention to of that, at that time. Some of it may be direct attention, like I'm paying attention to the phone in front of me that's recording the show. Or some of it may be peripheral awareness. So a moment of peripheral awareness where I'm just vaguely aware that I'm in a room, there's a computer here, there's an iPad with your comments, that kind of thing. <clears throat> in the setting of that, what determines what we pay attention to? Well, most of the time, it's an unconscious submind throwing stuff up with a strong enough intention. And the one that wins the intention battle, that thinks it's the most important, gets some screen time. 
And then all the other subminds get to look at that and go, oh, should we do anything about this? Do I need to pay a little more auditory attention to what's going on with that car crash that just draw my visual center, just draw my attention to? And then my thinking center is processing it going, I better go over there and see if I can help someone. All those kind of things happen instantaneously, like at some refresh rate per second. So you're getting just all this stuff on that screen. Just click, 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 all these moments of consciousness. String them together and you have experience. You have awareness. You have what it feels like to be us. So these sub-minds are working a lot of times not in concert to try to get your attention. So the question is, first of all, where's the, th where's the I in all that? So this was the number one question that kind of came up. And a lot of people comment like Dwight Christensen, isn't this the movie Inside Out by Pixar? Exactly. So in Inside Out, you see these sub-minds all trying to do their thing. And they're all trying to get her attention, right? The question is, who is this her? Who is the I that is getting attention? Well, one of the sub-minds is a sub-mind called the narrating sub-mind. Its job is to take all the input that comes into that boardroom from all these other little minds and bind it together. Go, you know what? Auditory said this, visual said this, thinking said this. Snapshot is you're in a room, there's a bird outside and you're thinking that this bird is beautiful. And so all that is a binding moment that comes up on the screen. Whoop, oh, by the way, this is the context. What that does is it goes back to the thinking submind, the discriminatory submind, that then ties it into an I, a sensation of I. I am in a room seeing a bird and hearing this bird. And I think this bird is a red-breasted robin or whatever. Now the I that's created in that phenomenon is entirely an illusion. It's something that's sort of developed by the discriminatory mind in response to this narrating mind, in response to the stimuli. But what's really going on? Raw information is being created by these subminds. And remember I said created. None of this is actually real because we don't know what reality really is. It's the subminds generating this and serving it up to us in awareness. So our mind creates our reality and our then the creation here is some input, presumably from outside, is generating a bird, generating a memory of a bird, identifying it through the discriminatory submind, um, seeing it there, hearing the, the, the bird song, and then binding it all together in narration. Then the discriminatory submind says, I see a bird and I remember it's this. This I is the basis of most of the misunderstandings of what it is we actually are. There's no little I sitting in your mind. In Inside Out, there's no one person in that movie, one little submind, being her. It's this consensus of different things that are happening unconsciously to her. She's not aware of them. And then sh this boardroom where things just appear and you're actually aware, that's really what we as a mind system are. We're the awareness in which all this unconscious activity becomes clear. So the lack of this self, this I, the more you meditate, the ultimate goal of meditation, at least in the sort of Theravada tradition and many of the traditions, uh, Tibetan traditions, etc., the ultimate goal of this is to develop enough concentration, enough inner awareness of how the mind system works that that insight becomes clear that, wow, there is no self. Things are just arising moment to moment in the present moment, which means there's no me to feel bad about, to hate, to regret, and actually that's a liberating thing. Now, again, I'm not even doing this concept justice because you have to experience the sense of selflessness to actually really have it intuitively make sense. And many people will have these glimpses through their lives, right? And, and, and actually in meditation, there are certain experiences that you can have that if you were living in zero AD, you might interpret through the lens of a Christian experience or a, a Muslim experience or a Judaic experience and attribute it to God or angelic voices or whatever you have. And in my scientific sort of secular experience, when I have those meditative experiences, I, I attribute it to, oh, the subminds, and this is what the book talks about, these subminds actually slowly start to unify around a single goal, which is maybe focus on the breath or focus on compassion or whatever your meditation is. And it's that slow unification of the subminds that through repeated practice and work through meditation actually generates feelings of bliss, of peace, of compassion for all living things, of 
uh, uh, letting go of regret and self-hatred and all these other things because you start to realize the self in itself is an illusion. And a lot of what we do is unconscious conditioning. And once we recognize it, we can actually transform the way we actually behave in the world. So let's read some comments. <clears throat> uh, Mursad Sardarovich, uh, yes, experience it. It's the only way to know it. Mursad, this is the trick. You can talk about meditation, you can talk about the mind system model, you can talk about it, you can look at fMRI, you can look at neuroscience and psychological studies that really back it up, but none of it will make sense to you until you actually go down the path of meditative introspection and actually experience it. it I would have thought it was crazy, I would have thought it was BS, and the truth is that's why a lot of people do. They, they reject it out of hand. Now, McMindfulness in our current culture says, oh, just close your eyes and think about the present moment and get a Headspace app and do that. Now, all that's great, but you are not even, I tell you because I've been doing this for five years now, trying to meditate. And I have failed for the majority of that time. Uh, what I found out in retrospect is I was just sitting in, in the, with my eyes closed thinking about meditating. And that is not, you're, you're missing a whole piece of it. And I think a lot of people who go down the mindfulness, mindfulness path that's being popularized are missing the fundamental boat. Now, here's the thing, when I caught the boat, first of all, it's quite a bit of diligence. You have to do it every day. You have to set time to do it. You have to maybe cut something else out of your life to do it. So I stopped checking email in the morning. I stopped looking at Facebook. I go right into an hour of meditation using the guide in this book. So it starts out very, distracted and dumb and then you get into it. But as you start to experience it, I have absolutely no doubt. There are times when I have experiences in meditation, when I'm learning about it and, I, and an insight clicks where I wanna go live right then and tell you guys, don't even fool around. Go and do this now, start working on this because it's absolutely a real phenomenon and the only way to know it, which is why it's so hard for scientists, the only way to know it is to experience it yourself. And Mursad said it, said it best. You have to do it yourself because it's introspection. It's subjective experience. It's sitting in your conscious boardroom watching your subminds do stuff. Now, here, here's the most amazing thing about that before I take some more questions. You can actually, understanding this mind system model and understanding that you have this consciousness boardroom where only one thing can be displayed at a time in a little mind moment and that intention, in other words, conscious intention, executive function, making these complex decisions and carrying them out, what that really is. There's no one little guy in your brain going, I'm gonna have an apple, right? Or I'm gonna have a cheeseburger. It's a consensus of the subminds. And it happens a lot of times unconsciously. When you're actually aware of struggling to make a decision, what's happening is the subminds are in conflict. And one wants to do this, the other wants to do that. Another part of the discriminatory submind wants to be healthy. The other one's like, just wants to have a good, like the hedonic feeling of eating really good cheeseburgers. And when they're in conflict, then it goes back and forth. Then you're aware of conflict and you start going back and forth in your mind and then you ultimately decide. The decision is when one or more of the subminds have won out and they're like, now nope, this is what we're doing guys. Everybody else shut up, let's go along for the ride. And a lot of times, if you're not paying attention to that, if you're doing that on autopilot, you're gonna make a decision that later you're gonna be like, why the hell did I do that? Whereas if you're mindful, you're, you're aware of what's going on and you're weighing this stuff and you're seeing what's happening and you're making more enlightened decisions, the chances of regretting those decisions are much less. Comments. Um, would definitely need a guide, Kelly Troser. I cannot tell you guys how important it is and I'm gonna tell you these guided meditations, this is my experience, the guided meditations on MP3 that you listen to in your ear, they're great to start with. Eventually they are just a distraction. What you need to do is get a teacher, which I can't find, I, I mean, I just don't, it's not for me, or a great book. And The Mind Illuminated for me was a great book. There are other great books. Talk to people, learn about it. Once you go through the steps and you, you have to be diligent, it takes practice. So I've been seriously meditating. And you guys have seen me do shows on meditation. I've been seriously doing it only for about three months now, for an hour a day. And in those three months, I've had uh, a clarity of experience and improved ability to concentrate in meditation. And I've seen some of the even higher stages of the meditative practice emerge. And they're tantalizing enough that you want to keep going. 
And I've had transient insight into this sort of selfless nature of consciousness. And some of that I think is because it's happened so fast for me because for five years I've been stabbing at it, right? Um, reading different books, listening to people like Sam Harris, who's a very secular sort of non-theistic way of uh, understanding meditation, et cetera, and he's been through the path. If you're religious, come at it from your, your religious point of view and your religious practice. There are Christian mystics, there's Christian forms of prayer and meditation, there are, there are Buddhist forms that are more iconographic, there are uh, uh, um, uh, Islamic forms of, uh, of this practice of uh, introspection. So the tricky part is there's some hardcore literal theistic uh, religious beliefs that for, for which this is heresy. So introspection is heresy. And I think those are a big impediment to understanding the true nature of who and what we are from whatever religious or non-religious perspective you want. But you have to do this stuff yourself and getting a guide, a teacher, a book, whatever it is, is key. Um, all of uh, Patricia's submines scream cheeseburger. I hear you, girl. I think I might've had a cheeseburger today. Um, Laura Brash, I've never learned, been able to meditate. Once I relax, I'm asleep, Laura Brash. Okay, so here's one of the tricks about meditation. Part of the mind system model of consciousness is that each, um, that PowerPoint sitting in the, in the boardroom has, gets one little frame at a time. There are like eight different types, I think, of mind moments. So there's like an auditory type, a visual type, just frame, 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 frame. There's also a thinking type, a binding moment from the narrating mind. And then there's something called a non-perceiving mind moment. That's like the mind shooting a blank. A non-perceiving mind moment is just a state of just pleasurable blah. And when those are strung together enough in a sequence, you start to get very, very, very tired. And it's this peaceful, very pleasurable feeling of being drowsy. And the next thing you know, you're asleep. What's amazing about being persistent with meditation, so this used to happen to me too. What's amazing about being persistent with meditation is that once you start to recognize that that's happening, imagine your framework is now, okay, I, my eyes are closed and I'm starting to feel, oh, I'm, being, I'm actually aware of being drowsy. What's going on? Bunch of non-perceiving mind moments at a time are sitting there in the boardroom and the rest of the mind sub-modules are like, it's time for Betty, bye the energy level goes down, and next thing you know, you're asleep. The way that you combat that is, first of all, you meditate at the same time every day, usually when you're the most alert. So for me, it's in the morning, right after I've gotten up and had coffee. For someone else, it may be a different time. Don't meditate after lunch, when you're sleepy, right before bed, when you're drowsy. Meditate when you're at your most alert. The second thing is, once you start to recognize what, it, in the book they call it dullness, what dullness feels like, you can intervene. So. Enough of the subminds recognize, oh, this is drowsy dullness. Okay, 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 okay. Next, next breath, pay perfect attention to it. And all the energy of the mind focuses on the next breath. The next thing you know, there's a little more energy. And that conscious intention, each little mind moment has an intention. And they lead to a kind of momentum to do stuff. So the more momentum you have to pay attention to the breath, that becomes self-fulfilling. And the energy of the mind increases and you wake up. And this is what's amazing. By about stage five of the 10 stages of meditation they talk in the book, you've overcome this dullness almost entirely to where you sit down, you get more and more alert, the more present and still you get. And it is one of the most amazing feelings because you know how it is. We're tired people in healthcare. To sit in the dark with your eyes closed at 4.30 in the morning and feel so alert and present and awake is a remarkable experience. All right, more comments. Um, keep the subminds busy, says Dwight Christensen, by going for a walk, a drive, a bicycle ride. Yeah, now the problem with that is these subminds act unconsciously. So when you're driving, the visual subminds coordinating with this motor discriminatory submind, and it's driving for you. If something jumps into the road, that's when that submind hijacks the PowerPoint in your boardroom and goes, look at this, everyone. And all the minds go, huh? And you have to make usually an unconscious decision to turn the wheel. Now, the difference is if you're actually there being mindful of that moment that you're driving, like you're really there, you're really present, and your mind is focused, when something flops out into the road, you actually have a buffer to, to come up with a more uh, consensual submind decision on what to do. Instead of swerving into oncoming traffic to avoid this thing in the road, you actually make a more 
conscious, mindful decision to slowly put the brakes on, turn to the right, get to the shoulder. And that requires more subminds being mindful, being there and present, and having your boardroom really consciously deciding where it's gonna pay attention to, having consensus of the subminds. Um, let's see. I'm so high strung, so bad that there's no way this is possible, LOL. Sean Erpelding. Dude, Sean, who the hell do you think you're looking at? Look at me. You guys have seen my show. I'm like, squirrel! I am the most ADD, jumping off the walls, hyper lunatic that you will find in medicine, probably. You know what I'm saying? Short of an emergency doc, and I'm a hospitalist. It's not about that, because think about what that is. What that means is, Sean, your subminds are conditioned, right, to maybe have less inhibition, more anxiety, more uh, discriminating minds ruminating more. You have maybe a more highly developed sense of this illusion of self, so you're always self-referring and going, am I gonna screw this up? I'm worried about the past, I'm worried about the future, and that will make you feel like you have monkey mind, that, that your attention is all over the place. Here's the beautiful thing about meditation. It is the process of recognizing and overcoming that. So actually, the more high-strung you are, the more you know, kind of nutty you feel, that will come out in the first few stages of meditation. You will recognize and see that for what it is, and you will overcome it with diligence. Just keep, to, keep practicing. Don't practice blindly though. Practice using the tools that are outlined by a teacher or by the book because it will actually give you the tools. Oh, monkey mind is happening. You're jumping all over the place. Well, here's a trick. If you're trying to focus on the breath and you're getting distracted by thoughts, expand what you focus on mentally to include your whole body, any sensation in your body. It turns out, remember I talked about the mind moments? It turns out that the more you only have one mind moment at a time. And if you're trying to focus on something narrow like the breath, sometimes that's so narrow that other thoughts and stuff, it's easy for them to intrude. If you have to focus your awareness over the whole body, including the breath, it's such a big task that the entire sort of boardroom is engaged sending mind moments about different sensations in the body. And there's no room for intrusive thoughts. There's no room for distraction, at least for a period of time. And that, in that way, you can condition the subminds to quiet down. You know what's amazing? So here's the thing that just, and when I started reading ahead in the book, ahead of where my practice was, I was like, oh my God, if I can do this, like this will be transformative. And I have, I've had glimpses of it. As you meditate more, part of the idea is that you're getting all the subminds to agree on whatever it is you wanna do. And in, in, in this book, it's follow the breath. Pay attention to the sensations of the breath at the tip of the nose, the cool, the sensation of flow, et cetera, without using too much concept. Like you don't think about in breath, out breath. You just go, oh, that feels this way, that feels this way. The more you get them to focus, what ultimately happens is something called pacification of mind. When this happens, the subminds get reconditioned because remember, this isn't a one-way street. Stuff just doesn't go into conscious awareness and disappear into a void. It's there for all the subminds to then see it and then process what's happening. If you ignore sounds, if you ignore distractions, if you ignore thoughts, let them come, let them be, let them go, long enough while redirecting attention in every conscious moment you can to your breath, the subminds start to get this message. They recondition and they start to quiet down. They stop serving you up this stuff and that's called pacification of the mind. They then all focus on the same thing, which is the breath. And when that happens, people report in the higher stages of meditation, and I've had glimpses of this, full body sensations of bliss, uh, the sensation that you're floating because there's no reference of bodily sensations, uh, thoughts quiet down and disappear, and all you're left with is this uh, what they call meditative joy. It's this sense of, oh wow, that the mind generates when all of its functions are unified around a single goal. In those settings, you can have these insight type experiences where you realize the self is an illusion, everything arrives moment to moment in the present moment, my mind works this way. And by the final stages of meditative practice, stage 10, you actually are able to apply this to your waking non-meditative state. So you're, you think about how the Dalai Lama may be. Nothing bothers the guy. 
right? But that doesn't mean he doesn't care about, you know, injustice or whatever it is. He's just able to approach the world from a place of equanimity, peace, non-reactivity, and love for everybody, even his enemies, but yet not let them off the hook because he still has his sub-minds just focused on whatever it is he's trying to do. So I'm using the Dalai Lama as an example. You could take any sort of non-religious figure that is, has been through meditative practice and they'll be, you'll see the same thing. So it's really a remarkable goal. And the more you kind of look at the path and the goal, the more you realize, why haven't I been doing this for a long, long time? Comments. Um, Carla just brought, bought the book. Great. Now, one of the things about the book, Carla, it's heavy duty. Like, this is a heavy duty tome. It's like a textbook, but you go through it. The way I did it is I went stage by stage by stage slowly. And then I, I, got, I had a roadblock where I was just having trouble. I was so distracted. Every time I sat down, I was just monkey mind jumping off. And so I read ahead into the stages where things got really weird. Like, okay, pacification of the mind, the mind-body system, the moments of consciousness model. And I started going, oh, let me apply that back to my monkey mind. And I sat down to meditate and it was transformative. Like I had absolute focus for that session. I was able to see the, the whole ocean of the mind with the breath right there. So attention on the breath, peripheral awareness on what the mind is doing. They call that in the book, metacognitive introspective awareness. Don't worry about that. The idea is that you know what your mind is doing. So you're always mindful of what's happening, but yet you're focused on whatever it is the task is at hand. And it, it's really, in, in healthcare, I think we could all use a lot more of this. And it can help us understand our patients and be less judgmental. Because if you think of your patient as just this neuronal storm of these subminds that have been conditioned that have no insight into how they work and are just going through life, firing, give me opioids, um, give me a warm blanket, <laughs> you know, I'm gonna continue to eat this crap even though I'm type two diabetic, that sort of thing. Your ability to have compassion for that and actually approach it from a place of wisdom is vastly transformed. Also, you forgive yourself. You have less self-hatred, less self-doubt, less worry about the future, less regret about the past. You appreciate how your mind responds to things and are less reactive, and you have a space to respond. Um, okay, let's see. Bup, 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 bup. Comments, comments, comments. So some people are recommending yoga. For some people, the body, okay, here's the thing about the body. <clears throat> we see the mind and the body as separate. The Buddhists and experienced meditators don't make that distinction. They refer to it as body-mind, body-mind. And it sounds spooky and new age, but really all it means is that it is a complex continuum of the same thing. In deep meditative states where you're doing body scanning meditations, you can actually feel this sort of, one state of body and mind. And it's really quite remarkable and it's actually a tool to help focus your concentration. Some people have really remarkable experiences with the body and the mind. Now think about this, when your mind is agitated, when you're filled with anxiety and worry, it manifests physically, we see it all the time. I'd say 50% of what we see in a primary care clinic is mind related, uh, either physical illness or somatic symptoms of something that's mind related. And, and we have to address that right? So the mind and the body are one continuous thing. Um, let's see. Comments, comments, comments. So nice little exercise. Okay, wait, wait, wait. I'm going to skip that one. Um, okay. Sarah Chalk, ADHD makes meditating so hard for me. I'm great at active mindfulness, but sitting still, quiet, focusing on breathing doesn't work for me. Sarah, get this book. And go through, he goes through all the different inhibitors to being able to pay attention on the breath. And kind of goes through, well, how do you actually modify these? How can you get around this problem? He actually mentions ADHD as, a, as, a, as an issue, but not one that is insurmountable. In fact, through training attention and meditation, you can actually improve the ADHD symptoms. That doesn't mean you have to get off medication and all this. It just means, listen, attention is the goal of meditation. Just because you have a diagnosis of ADHD doesn't mean that, it's, it's like saying, look, um, my leg is really weak congenitally. Does that mean you shouldn't exercise your leg? No, it's more reason to exercise your leg. My attention is congenitally problematic. Wouldn't you wanna exercise it? Wouldn't you wanna make it more focused and better? And I think that's what this does. And again, I sound a little bit like a used car salesman, but remember, I don't really have a dog in this fight. This is my own personal experience. Now, here's the thing. I'm a hospital doctor. 
I practiced for about 10 years at Stanford. I, you know, worked in research labs. Like I'm a scientist through and through. I want you to frame what I say through the idea that this is how a scientist sees meditation. This is how a skeptic who is pro-vaccination, anti-woo, hates Gwyneth Paltrow, Paltrow's goop, thinks Jenny McCarthy is insane, thinks Deepak Chopra is a shill, but who says a few things that actually make sense, but has gone down the path to the dark side of just new age mumbo jumbo, quantum consciousness and all this, it's garbage. Here's what's not garbage. You can, you can empirically improve your mind through meditation. You don't have to believe anything if you are an atheist, go get Sam Harris's book, Waking Up, A Guide to Spirituality Without Religion, and he goes through this. If you are a evangelical Christian, go get Sam Harris's book, Waking Up, A Guide to Spirituality Without Religion, because you can apply it through your Christian lens to introspection. Maybe the inner illumination that you feel in a deep meditative state that precedes unification of mind Many meditators, most meditators will report bright white light behind the eye eyelids. I've seen this myself, or fluttering flashing lights in deep meditative states. Imagine you're, you know, a very religious, you might interpret that as a, a sort of a holy experience. And I think that's what's happened throughout history. Now, the danger is when you interpret an experience like that incorrectly and you go out and do something crazy. And I think some people do do that as well. So we have to be aware of these real experiences through mindfulness, meditation, spirituality, they can have real world consequences if they're not framed with the right truth, whatever that is. Um, you know what my bias is. Um, Jose Martinez, yes, Sam Harris is awesome. Yes, yeah, Sam is who kind of introduced me to this concept because I'm a big skeptic. I love listening to his podcast. When I realized he had been a lifelong meditator, I'm like, wait, this can't be total bull BS. And then watching him, I, I learned a lot and his book really opened my eyes. Now that was like a few years ago that I read it and I've been struggling for that long trying to find the path. Now when I go back and listen to the book again on audiobook, it's uh, so different, I see it so differently. I, I see what the path was that Sam was talking about. So it's important, it's very, very, uh, very, very difficult. So again, I'm not trying to sell you anything. I'm telling you this because I'm honestly convinced and believe me, I've been searching all my life for some way to be less of an a-hole, to be less reactive, to control the monkey mind. And, you know, whether it was drugs in college or whether it was pouring myself into my work in my 30s as a doctor or whether it was making silly rap videos and using humor as a way to cope, uh, this is the first time when I felt like, oh, this has been here for thousands of years and I've totally missed it. And the more I explore it, the more I'm convinced that you guys could benefit from it. We could all benefit from it if we approach it with the right skepticism, with the right understanding and the right diligence. That's the thing, it's not magic. People who are trying to sell you magic are, are doing exactly that, they're trying to sell you something. Deepak Chopra sells these meditation glasses that have fancy lights and stuff. Come on, dude. And here's the thing. Again, like I said, the guided meditations are great when you start. They're great when you start. But once you get into it, turn all that ish off and really, really focus on the practice as laid out maybe in something like this book. All right. Oh, Christy Columbus saw my daughter behind me. She probably snuck in for a second. She does that. Um, let's see. Uh, I'm searching for a way not to cry at the drop of a dime. Joe So. Joe, so... The emotional submind is asserting itself and there's probably a lot of trauma or conditioning or whatever that's happened that makes makes maybe there's some emotional lability. I mean, again, I'm a dime store psychologist here. Here's what I found, what is really interesting. Sometimes in, and this is a common experience, in a very deep meditative state where your concentration is very good and the submind's quiet down, you will just burst into tears. Um, and there's no specific emotion behind it. And you just find yourself weeping in, you know, in, the, in your meditative position. And I think part of that is these, these are, these are when, when the monkey mind stops thinking all the time and being identified with thought, unconscious thoughts, emotions, feelings come bubbling up and they're just there and they show up in the boardroom of consciousness and there you are crying and you don't know why. And I think that's one of the really, actually one of the beautiful processes, part of this process is there's a kind of a strange, um, catharsis that happens where you let a lot of the stuff that's been hiding out in your unconscious come out. You know, psychotherapists can do this. You know, Freud talked about this stuff and he was partially right. The unconscious kind of runs the show and we ignore it at our peril. Um, the Mind Illuminated is the name of the book. Um, 
Brad Buckley, I get so far in, I assume in meditation, to the point that I'm floating and then I jump out of it with a complete body jerk. I get intense fear, full on fight or flight mode, Brad Buckley. Okay, so Brad, this comes up in the book. You need to get this book. So he talks about in the higher stages of meditation, it's normal to have sort of these tonic jerks uh, to feel these sort of electric sensations going through your body and to feel like you're floating as the senses start to pacify. What he says is there are some people who have a very adverse reaction to this. It's harmless physically, but people get so scared. Um, and a lot of times it's because there's some unconscious uh, stuff going on, either a trauma or a memory that has some affiliation with the sensations that you're having, and you'll snap out of the meditative state and be very afraid. So exactly what you describe is a not uncommon thing that can happen in the more advanced stages of meditation, or some people just have them happen early. So you might just be a meditative savant, Brad. Um, and again, don't take any of this as medical or psychiatric advice. I'm just telling you what I've been learning in this book and trying to make some sense of it. Um, let's see, hi from the Philippines, miss the baldness. <laughs> shalom apostol. I nako shalom, you know I'm, I'm very bald because I don't have the hair. I'm still working on my Filipino accent uh, because all my nurses, all my nurses in Cali were Filipina or Filipino and uh, they were the best. So I picked up some of the accent and some of the, I even knew a few words for a while. You know what really, actually what really bugs me sometimes is like, we'll do something like the Metamoji where I'll do a Filipino accent and most everybody gets it, but there's a couple of uh, Filipinas that get offended and I, I do feel bad. At the same time, I'm like, you know, it's done out from a place of love. Intention matters, right? If you're doing it to ridicule people, it's a different thing. So, um, Let's see, other stuff here. Uh, I'm skeptical too, like an emotional ferret, says Patty Wilden, but I love your style and humor, so maybe, Patty, you, my dear, are my target audience in this. So there are some people that are well into woo already that are just like, woo, new age, man. And there are some people that are so deep in the matrix that they're never gonna meditate because they just associate it with clownery and woo. But there are some people who are on the fence because for me it was, well, as a lifelong sort of agnostic, trying to find a spirituality, a spirituality that actually worked for me in the setting of you know, neuroscience, understanding the mind, personal development, was very hard and finding this process. And actually weirdly finding it in a Buddhist context because the, the, there are very secular strains of Buddhism that you don't believe anything. You don't have to believe in reincarnation or karma or any of this other stuff. By the way, karma, let's talk about that for a second. I used to, the idea of karma as this like resonant, you know, mystical field is, um, is not my understanding of karma now that I've meditated more. Karma is simply the momentum of conscious intention of the subminds. So in other words, if you have an intention to help somebody and you help them, that conscious intention generates a kind of momentum in the mind that can continue and good things can happen. Conversely, if you focus on negativity and you're constantly doing bad things, thinking bad thoughts, uh, doing bad, meaning things that harm other conscious entities, you, 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 you have a momentum that creates this sort of negative karma. The word karma is woo-woo, but the action of momentum of intention is actually a real thing. Now, I'm not talking about this Oprah secret BS where it's like, I can just intention something into being. No, that's pseudoscientific crap. I'm talking about just how the mind works. If it's a series of mind moments strung together in a momentum and a flow, wouldn't you want the most sort of positive mind moments you can get to get actual positive outcomes? If our mind creates the world around us and how we see it, wouldn't that be our own kind of karma? That's how I see karma. And it's nothing religious. You don't have to believe anything. It's, it's just an empiric observation of the nature of how the universe works. Um, let's see, uh, more comments. These comments and questions are very good. For some reason, I knew you were gonna go off on karma. <laughs> Andrea Aponte. Yeah, you know, it's funny, Noella Hame says karma is amazing. So I once told a devout Hindu that I thought karma was BS. And they described it to me in terms that finally made some scientific sense to me, which is exactly that. It's the kind of momentum groove that we wear in through our thoughts and our actions and our deeds. And they do come back because there's a momentum that's created. Think about it this way. If there's no self in your mind making decisions, it's this consensus of unconscious minds, well, what actually determines what happens in the world? Well, it's all this prior 
sort of prior conditions and causes that lead our sud minds to make these decisions. Now, the more we pay attention to this in our boardroom, the more we can actually executively get a consensus of subminds to do things we want them to do. We meaning the consensus of subminds, do better things in the world, be nicer to people, show more love, be less reactive. And that generates a momentum that ripples out. You're nice to people generally, you'll find that they'll not, they're nice to you. If they're not nice to you, but you approach them in a non-judgmental, non-reactive way, you're not gonna feel that as them being viciously mean. You're just gonna see suffering in, in their body, in their body mind and go, that person's suffering if they're acting out this way. Like that must be a deep kind of pain. I know what that feels like because I felt that. So cognitively, I understand what they're going through and I'm gonna be less reactive. It's not about me, first of all, because there is no me. Uh, but second of all, it's really more about their own suffering. So that is sort of karma. Uh, does Z-Mom have any books she'd recommend, Tracy Weaver? I'll have to ask Z-Mom. So Z-Mom is not uh, a meditator, neither is Z-Dad. They're both moderately anxious type A's. Um, they have many, they've learned to work their uh, magic through their brain and as they've aged, they've gotten better at it. But my mom is an anxious Nelly and my dad is an anxious Nelly. Uh, and so actually it was partially on their modeling. Now my dad, so my dad is very religious. So he, we're Zoroastrians by, I'm a Zoroastrian by birth. It's an ancient monotheistic religion. Had a prophet Zoroaster who came down and said, think good thoughts, do good deeds, speak good words, more or less. And there was a, a devil in him basically in the simplistic description. So it influenced early Judaism, early Christianity, Christianity, et cetera. Me being agnostic, I just took the ritual out of it. You know, there was chanting and sort of priests when I was a kid, when I was going through my equivalent of a bar mitzvah. And, but my dad still has his little prayer area and he's, he says these ancient, you know, Persian prayers and chants them and does all of this stuff. And I used to kind of, when I was younger and more militantly agnostic, I would sort of criticize him and go, what are you doing, man? Like you're wasting so much time chanting to an imaginary God that doesn't hear you and, you know, science, buddy. And after going down, <laughs> after going down this sort of meditative path, what I see is he's seeking his own connection with the true reality of what and who he is and his place in everything. And the last time I went back home, uh, you know, he was doing his, he always tries to get me to do these, um, these prayers with him because since I was baptized in the faith, uh, he just assumes that every now and again, I'll, I'll, you know, pray to this, you know, God and go through these rituals. But of course I don't. So every time I come home, I have to go through this pretend motion of sitting there in front of the shrine and he burns incense and makes me, you know, mentally recite these prayers that I learned as a kid in a language I don't understand. And uh, I used to resent it, I used to hate it, I used to get uncomfortable, I wanted to jump out of my skin. And the last time I went over there, with this sort of minimal perspective that I've gained from all this practice of meditation and mindfulness and understanding mind-body and trying to seek some bigger truth about what it is we actually are, we're not our thoughts and our emotions and our mind even, we're this awareness in which it all arrives and somehow it's all connected. And, uh, I told him, I said, you know what? Yeah, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna treat this belief system that you have as a framework for your own way to discover the same thing I'm trying to discover. And I'm gonna say these prayers with a different uh, way of looking at it. I'm gonna say them as a mantra to try to focus my attention on the now and how much you know, my loved ones mean to me and what you know, all the gratitude and, and uh, great things that I have and uh, I tell you, it was one of those things where it was, and you know, he knew it too. Like you could tell he was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. And I said, I said, well, this is how I see this ritual. And he said, honestly, that's how I see it too. First time we've ever really talked about it beyond just the dogma of the act. Now think about that when you go to church or when you're raising your kids or when you're thinking about your own position in the universe, you know, what, what? We're all struggling for meaning and connection. That's why sometimes I find, you know, the, the hardcore, the hardcore skeptic, atheist, non-meditator is a little difficult to wrap the brain around because 
if you're trying to just get a sense of awe and the science of the universe and all of that, that's great. But without deep introspection to really feel what you are, it's, it's hard. And I think that's what I was missing in my 30s and 20s when I was sort of a little more militant. So there you have it. Um, gosh, I think I've said... <laughs> I think I've said too much. Laura Brosh, we are mind, body, spirit. I want to unpack that for a second because that can sound like religious mumbo jumbo. But here's what I think. Mind and body are the same thing. They're just a continuum. Uh, and the more you kind of introspect and actually experience this, you, you see this as true. It's really a field of energy that you feel. Spirit for lack of a better word, and it's where the term spirituality comes from too. Spirit is simply, in my mind, the deep sense of who you actually are, which is awareness itself. In other words, what is it that is knowing all of this? Try to think back to what that is. Can you identify it in your mind? What is actually doing the knowing? What is aware of this bald man talking to you right now? What is it that is aware? This is true self-inquiry. Who am I, the real I, capital I, the self that is knowing all of this? And you look and you look and you look and you won't find it. And that is the Holy Spirit, for lack of a better term. And you don't have to believe in God, you don't have to believe in anything, but that is an inexplicable fundamental truth of everything that is. And I think that's what ultimately meditation might lead you to, but I'm not there yet. So on that very woo-woo note, remember, I'm a skeptic. I'm a scientist. I'm not trying to sell you anything. I'm just telling you where I am in my own path. And I hope it was helpful to you guys. Leave some questions. I actually read these comments and will try to answer when I find that one is something that I can, I might be able to help with. Um, it means a lot to me that you would sit through the 300 people that have been with me from the beginning of this sit through this and it, um, I'm, if you guys like it at all, I will try, the more I learn, the more I'll try to impart what little I can do uh, to y'all. All right, guys, I love you. We out, peace. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just gotta ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithm to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, Financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.